The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our teaching text this morning comes from Ecclesiastes 4, 1 through 16. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's, uh, let's pray together, shall we? Lord, we, we don't want the, the words that we just sang to be um, just some things, just some catchy, rhyming lines. But we do, we, we want to be committed to you. We want to offer you our lives. We want to acknowledge, here's all the ways that we've run after everything that's not you, and we want to repent from those things, and we want to turn from those things, and we want the cry of our hearts to be that we're desperate for your presence. Your presence is not just a good idea. It's not just a concept of theology, but it's reality that we want in our lives that for you to be present with us, Lord. We need you. We love you. Lord, as we take another look at Ecclesiastes, this morning, God, I pray that you would open our hearts, open our minds. God, push back against the, the barriers and the walls and the ways we would want to caveat our way out of the text and all of that, Lord. Would you just speak as you've been doing for thousands of years, Lord, through your word and through your spirit. We need you. We love you. We pray all these things in Christ's name and all God's people said, 
Amen. If you've got a Bible, Ecclesiastes chapter 4. If we haven't met before, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. Ecclesiastes 4. Uh, we are continuing our series today in this book. And in case you're new or just been checked out in sadness, like a lot of you, uh, our big goal over this series has been to join this guy who the text calls the preacher, in his search for the good life under the sun. What does it mean to live a flourishing life here on earth, here in the temporary, here in what is not eternal? What does it mean to live well? And what we've returned to time and time again over the past three weeks is this. The good life is a place to belong, a people to belong there with, good work to do all in and with the presence of God. In case you've been missing it as we've been kind of journeying, this has been our argument that the good life, according to Ecclesiastes, is a place to belong, a people to belong there with, good work to do in said place, all in and with the presence of God. In fact, what the preacher returns us to is God's original design. This is actually a very easy, simple way to summarize the good of Genesis 1 and 2, right? God gives us a place, the Garden of Eden. And there's a people, right? Adam and Eve committed and belonging to one another. There's good work. God tells them, have dominion, tend the garden, work it and keep it all in and with the presence of God. They have intimacy with him. But not only is that where we were, that is also, though it's now tainted by sin, actually where God is taking us in future redemption. He's taking us to a place, the new heavens and the new earth to be there with a people, all who trust and follow Jesus, to have good work to do. Our future is not a garden, but rather, as one theologian says, a garden city. There is good labor for us to do in the new heavens and the new earth, all once again in the fullness of the presence of God. Revelation says, in the new heavens and new earth, there will be no need for any lamp or light because Jesus' glory will shine so brightly. In other words, if that's where we were, right, we had the good life, and that's where God is taking us, we will have the good life, then even as we live life here and now, tainted by sin, we strive to give ourselves to the very same things. We ask this question, how do we learn to enjoy, embrace, and live well within our place, our people, our profession, and the presence of God? You like that? Now today in chapter 4, the preacher's going to hone in on that second part in particular for us, a people to belong with. That's where I want to spend our time today, looking at that second part of the good life, a people to belong with. If you want to live the good life, you have to learn to live in deep, loving, true relationship with others. This is how the preacher says it clearly in the middle of today's passage in verse 9. Two are better than one. Because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now, you may have heard this passage read or taught before, specifically at a wedding, to describe the beauty of marriage, right? Two are better than one. And while that's a very fitting application of this passage, it's not the sole application. What the preacher has in mind here is not less than marriage, but certainly much, much more. He's actually pointing us to something that echoes and resounds throughout the scriptures. A life well lived is lived with 
others. In other words, you were not meant to be alone. You were wired at your soul level for community for deep, flourishing relationships with other people. We see this all throughout the Bible, most notably at the beginning of the whole book, right? God creates the world. He stands back. He says that it's good, except for what? One thing, Genesis 2.18, it is not good that the man should be alone. Another passage we often use to talk about marriage that certainly means that, but actually much, much, much more. Right in the beginning, the one thing that is not good is that someone is alone. You don't have to read past the first two chapters of the Bible to see that any amount of I'm good, just doing me mentality is off from the design of God. We see this need for others interwoven into the story of the gospel as well, right? That when God saves us, he forgives us, he reconciles us, not just to himself, but also, as we say every week in the gathering, he reconciles us to one another. That when you become a Christian, when you put your faith in Jesus, you get God as father, but also each other, other Christians as brothers and sisters in Christ. Church is a family. That's a huge part of our vision of what we want to be even here at Citizens. And this, if you'll notice the language of the preacher, is not just a right thing, but it's actually a good thing. It's part of the way we argue about God's design for life. It's not just the right way to live. It's actually the best way to live. And he goes really practical in chapter four, right? He says, if you fall and you're alone, who's going to pick you up? If you're sleeping and you're cold, who's going to keep you warm? And if you get in a street fight, who's going to back you up? It's very practical. What he's showing is that it's not just right. God's design for community is good. It's healthy. It's necessary. And if you've ever been a part of deep, flourishing Christian community, or if you've joined in with us as a part of this church family, you've hopefully and probably experienced the beauty and necessity of community in your own life. How helpful it is to have someone to call when you've had the worst day at work and you're like three seconds from lashing out at your boss and quitting. Just to be able to call some, hey, just talk me down off the ledge, right? Or how just... I mean, like soul resting it is to sit in a group of people and to look around and go, I'm fully known and fully loved here. How beautiful it is when you're five seconds away from making an emotionally stupid decision for someone to say, hey, this ain't it. Let's walk this path instead. You've experienced this. You know that is the better way. And if you've been on the receiving end of that or if you've been on the giving end of that, if you've been the one to talk the person off the ledge, if you've been the one to point them in another direction, if you've been the one to receive someone's confession of sins, hear it, and then remind them of the gospel, you know how it's not only life-giving and beautiful for them, but also life-giving and beautiful for you. Is it not? You and I were created for this, for life-giving, sacrificial, fully known, and fully loved over the long-haul relationships with one another. That is essential for the good life under the sun. But the preacher is not only deeply honest about that need and beauty, but also deeply honest about how difficult our relationships can be. And that's where I want to spend our time together this morning. So his main point, verse nine, two are better than one, is sandwiched between a bunch of ways community can be broken. He's gonna give a, a myriad of ways, kind of heart level things that will cut off beautiful community in our life. What we're gonna call, just for fun, community killers. This is what he's going to get into in chapter four. Five community killers, five heart level. You have to wrestle with it. It's probably there in some way, shape, or form in your life. Things that are going to cut you off from beautiful, necessary, flourishing relationships with others. And so what I want to do is just kind of put these five out there and let you do a little bit of a self with the spirit assessment this morning. All right. 
Chances are you're going to see parts of them in uh, you, but I just want to kind of lay them out in front of you. We'll hit them quick. Don't get nervous that there's five. I'll let you kind of do a little self-assessment, all right? Five community killers, five things we all struggle with that get in the way of God's design for us to live in beautiful, flourishing relationships. The first one is in verses one through three. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. Behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are under the sun. Five community killers. Number one, objectification. Objectification. First way that community can get killed is objectification. Let's talk about, let's talk about this because there's some heavy stuff in here. So the preacher says, everywhere I look, I see oppression. That those who have power are not using their power to build others up, but rather to tear others down for the sake of their own advancement and gain. And he laments this to an almost scary degree, to a degree that most of us would not be willing to be honest this level. It's painful. He looks out at the world, as so many of us could even today in 2023, and he points at all of the horrific injustices and oppression being done, and he says, it's better to not even be alive. And if that's not enough, it's better not just to not be alive, but also to have never been born. That's how deep his grief goes. He looks at it, all of the wicked things that humans do to one another, and he says, what is wrong with us? Like, if this is what humanity does to each other, I want no part in it. This is vanity. It's evil. It's wicked. No, thank you. I want nothing to do with this. Now, I know some of us in the room have faced and experienced some very real, horrific realities of oppression, abuse mistreatment at the hands of others. You have story after story that you could tell of the wickedness done to you as someone used you and set you aside as something that they can just objectify instead of treating as a human with a soul. And that's worth lamenting and grieving and mourning and raising our voices to say, this is wrong with the preacher. Some of you have faced that. Some of you have, have even thought this reality at one time or another. Maybe it was better if I wasn't even alive. If this is going to be the depression of my story. If this is going to be what marks my life. That's real, and we grieve that. But I also think it'd be amiss if we don't address the ways at which this happens on more everyday levels too. Because what can happen, especially in our culture today, is we can hear the word oppression and start pointing fingers to the worst of it and miss that all of us at our core can be guilty of the heart of oppression. And here's the heart of oppression. The heart of oppression is where we don't think of each other as human beings to be loved, but objects to be used. That's the heart of our oppression. It's objectification, right? At a heart level, oppression comes from objectification. I'm going to determine your value based on your usefulness to me, like you're a product or a commodity, and then I'm going to treat you in line with that valuation that I just gave you. And oppression and objectification start at the same place. You exist for me. This is rampant on a kind of uh, everyday level because of what I say is the primary goal of the secular West that we all live in, and that is, quote, Project Me. Right? The number one thing you hear time and time again in every sphere of life, at work, at home, advertisements, social media, everything pushes you towards the secular project me. 
right? Everything exists for me. I'm becoming the best and happiest and most elite version of myself, and everyone else around me either gets on board with my project so I can become the best me, or they get off the bus. That's the secular West. That's what we are pushed every day, and it's such a low level. I mean, just think about this in your life. Think about how many times you find yourself saying or ending a statement with these two words, for me. How many times your behavior is driven by those two little words, for me? Let me give you a few examples. Uh, I just don't feel like going to group tonight is what's best for me. Or I just don't want to spend time with that person right now because they're draining for me. Or I don't want to go to the hangout that that person is organizing because I just don't really like that activity and it's not really fun for me. Hey, I know that you're going through some hard stuff. I just don't want to talk about it right now because I don't think what you're about to share is good for me. How much of our behavior is driven? That's the language of objectification. Everyone else around me, groups, organizations, individuals, the church, all exist as a means of benefiting me. But it kills community because if I'm objectifying you, then I'm using you, not loving you. And if you're objectifying me, you're using me, not loving me. And it kills beautiful, flourishing community in your life. All right, let's go to number two. Verse four. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor, this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. First community killer, objectification. Number two, jealousy. Jealousy. Preacher says all toil and skill come from envy. So think about it. How much of your working hard, wanting to do better in your job, in your parenting, in your hobbies, fill in the blank, how much of it at its core is driven by jealousy? I'm not content because I deserve what you have. I deserve to be as comfortable, I deserve to be as wealthy, I deserve to be as successful, I deserve to be as talented, I deserve to be as important and good-looking and liked and happy as fill-in-the-blank. Who's that person for you? That person who's just like always a little bit ahead of where you are in life. But there's a little bit further, just a little bit out of reach. What this does, this posture of jealousy, turns that search for more we talked about in chapter 2 into a desire and search for more because of the more of others. They have what I need. They have what I want. And the preacher says, this is vanity. It does not live to lead to the good life with others. Because often we think about jealousy just in terms of wanting the thing, like the coveting side of jealousy. Like you have something that I want. And so we just think about it like the internal battle. But think for a minute how jealousy actually leads to cutting off relationships with others. Here's what happens. Jealousy often moves into bitterness. So someone is celebrating something, and they're celebrating something that you long for and crave at your soul. And so you see that, and then what happens, right? I can't celebrate with them. I'm jealous of what they have that I don't have, and so now I'm bitter. Now I'm angry. Now I'm frustrated. Or someone's sharing a struggle about something, and you can't move into empathy with them. You can't actually be there for them or remind them of the gospel or sit with them because you're jealous about the very thing they are lamenting. You want the very thing they are complaining about right now. And this is hard because a lot of times it's real things. Like a lot of times it's real unmet desires, is it not? Like it's not like lame things. It's like real unmet desires, right? So you're sitting in group and you're single and you have a real unmet desire of wanting to be married and you're sitting in group with someone who just keeps every week, week in and week out, complaining about their marriage. Jealousy leads to bitterness. Or you're sitting with someone and you long with your soul to be able to have children. And they're complaining week in and week out and week in and week out about how much their kid won't sleep and how disobedient they are and what. You can't move towards them with empathy because jealousy is turning into bitterness. 
Or what about the other side of it, right? The Bible says weep with those who weep, but also rejoice with those who rejoice. So you're sitting there and you're frustrated about your lack of a, you know, a raise at work or a lack of a promotion or a lack of recognition from your boss. And this person's over here and they show up to group and they're like, it's a celebration night. I got the raise I was waiting for. I got the promotion. And now what? Jealousy turns into bitterness. Jealousy kills community. It kills your ability to love and serve others, to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Number three, verse five. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Community killer number three, laziness. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. This phrase, folds his hand, shows up a couple places in the scripture. Uh, it's an ancient Jewish way of describing the lazy person, who the Proverbs call the fool. And the imagery the person, the preacher is trying to show us here is someone who is so lazy, he won't work to provide sustenance for himself, so he's just going to eat his own hands. Like, that's his way of, he's like, I'm so lazy, I'm not getting up, I'm not working, I'm just going to eat my own hands. It's a, it's a crazy picture, it's meant to kind of shock us a little bit. Let's talk about laziness. What does this mean for our relationships? I think it means a ton, but most importantly, this. Laziness kills community because any meaningful relationship takes work, right? Like any meaningful relationship takes work. If you're lazy, you will never experience deep, flourishing, happiness-producing community. It takes effort to build meaningful relationships. It takes effort to put something on your schedule. It takes effort to go get in the car and drive somewhere and meet someone. It takes effort once you're there with the person to actually put your phone away and engage in a conversation and relationship. Energy, it takes effort. Any meaningful relationship you want to have takes work. It takes effort. It takes effort to actually turn off the TV and listen and talk to your spouse. There was this commercial uh, that popped in my mind uh, this morning, like 15, 20 years ago. I don't know if anybody remembers this. The Klondike Bar commercial. You guys know the Klondike Bar has that uh, saying. It's like, what would you do for a Klondike bar. And one of the commercials, gosh, this must have been a decade plus ago, uh, was the guy, it was called the Husband Listening Challenge. And in order for him to get a Klondike bar, he had to turn the TV off and pay attention to his wife for five seconds. And so on the commercial, he like turns and like the timer starts and he's like sweating bullets while he's like trying to listen to his wife for five seconds. The timer hits zero and he like sits back and he's like, ah, and confetti drops from the ceiling. Cheerleaders come out. It's really crazy. And they give him a Klondike bar. And it's funny, like it's, it's meant to be like, ha ha, this is hilarious, husbands suck, but it's like really, it's quite <laughs> ridiculous, this commercial. But here's the reality of what they're pointing into, right? It is difficult work to build a meaningful relationship where you have to listen. Like it just is, it's hard work. And so you get to that moment and it's Tuesday night at like 5.45 and you're like, I'm tired. It's Thursday at seven, I'm not partial to one group or the other. <laughs> like work was stressful and I'm just tired. Any meaningful relationship takes work. In fact, I would even argue that part of why we are ingrained against this more and more in our society, part of why all the statistics show that the loneliest people in America are the majority of the people in this room, 25 to 50, is because meaningful relationships take work and you have a thing in your pocket that says, no, you can have all the relationships you want with no work at all. You just pull out your phone, right? I don't have to get in the space with you. I can just call you. Oh, I don't even have to call you. I can just text you. Or I don't even have to text you. I can just get on social media and know exactly what's happening in your life without any meaningful engagement or energy at all uh, from me. 
And technology is a great thing. It's actually very helpful in fostering relationships. It can be very fruitful. It can be very life-giving. And it can be very dangerous to push us further into this mold of, I don't want to spend energy to build anything that lasts in terms of my relationships with others. Do not live a lazy life and a life of loving others. All right, two more. Verse six. <clears throat> Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil. I was striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. This is number four. It's kind of the flip side. If laziness is three, number four is busyness. Community killer number four is busyness. It's vanity, it's habel, it's meaningless, the preacher tells us, when you have this person who works and works and works and works and works, and then finally looks up and is like, why am I working so hard? Like, who am I going to share this with? Who am I going to enjoy my labors and the fruit of my labors with? Do I have anyone to share it with? It's this sad person you're supposed to feel bad for, this vanity of life where this person works themselves over and over and over again, looks up and goes, I have no one to share. I have no one to enjoy this with. Busyness kills community. I think this one's pretty obvious, right? If you're too busy to show up, you can't foster the relationships that need to be fostered to flourish, right? So you're never at Sunday worship because you're always traveling. You're visiting that other city, the mountains, the beach, et cetera, et cetera. You're never at group because you always have a work emergency. This is just real quick. Uh, if um, Work emergency is like four times a week. It's not an emergency. It's just work. All right. Take that with what you will. Uh, I can't go to that hangout on Saturday. I have this, this house project and that house project. Or busyness can become a posture of the heart where even when you're willing to finally, okay, I'm going to set this aside. I'm going to put my work down. I'm actually going to show up. You have no means of actually turning off that internal system that's like, go, 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 go. And so you sit down across from coffee with someone and what's your mind doing? To-do list emails. What's next? What's coming up? What time is it? I got to go. Sorry. Bye. We're busy internally. So our mind is flustered and fluttered, constantly checking our phone, constantly thinking about what's coming next. And here's the reality. Life is busy. All right. Like, let's just own it. Say it what it is. None of us in the room are uniquely more busy than anybody else. Okay. We're just busy. Life is busy. Okay. Some people might be like, I'm bit. We're all busy. Life is, you're an American in 2023. It's busy. Okay. Life is busy. I'm not saying it's not, but if your schedule is so busy that you don't have time to give yourself to the development of meaningful relationships, then your life is busy with the stuff outside of God's design. Because if he's designed you for deep community, then that means you're doing stuff he has probably not called you to do because he would not call you to do stuff that would so fill up your calendar that you don't have time to do some of the other stuff he's called you to do. So we're busy. We can't step in. And I'll, I'll even say it this way. One of the things I'm learning a lot um, that's going to be, uh, um, I was going to say into my thirties, but that makes it sound like I'm smart. I'm not. Um, one of the things I'm learning as I get older, I'll put it that way, is that developing relationships takes wasting time with others. Like it, it just takes the ability to go, I have no agenda with you. And you, know, you can't have an agenda with me. And we just got to sit and we got to enjoy a fire and we got to enjoy some good food and some good drinks. And we just got to talk about whatever. Like that's the type of wasting time that our culture would say isn't all that important because it doesn't help the project me. That is a crucial and essential for actually building the friendships we want. And so if you always show up to people with an agenda, always show to people going, okay, how are you going to improve me? And how am I, how, you know, like, what are we going to do? It's like, we'll never be able to waste time Wasting time with others and, as we thought about in the prayer series, wasting time with God is an essential part of relationship building. 
All right, last one. We're doing good? Yeah, there's no death this week, so that's good. Um, Verse 13. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. The last fifth community killer from the preacher is pride. Pride. The preacher does what's common in wisdom literature. He gives kind of this small one-off parable story to illustrate a point about how to live. And here the preacher tells us about someone who has really a rags-to-riches story. He goes from the prison to the throne. And he contrasts this king to someone who's back where he once was, a young, poor child in his kingdom. And the preacher does something shocking. He says it's better to be the poor, wise youth who is willing to listen to others than the old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. That's his main point in these four verses. What he's describing there is the posture of pride in our relationships. If you want a a fancier word for it, you could call this narcissistic inflexibility. Narcissistic inflexibility. Narcissism, an individualistic, self-consumed love of yourself and your own ideas. Inflexibility, being completely shut off to anyone else's input or help or advice. In other words, to be prideful in terms of how it kills community is because you think you're awesome and no one can tell you otherwise. That's what it means to be narcissistically inflexible. How might this look? Someone tries to tell you that you're off in a certain way in your community group and you roll your eyes. You minimize it. You move past it really quickly. Someone tries to point out in love and kindness and care for you sin in your life and you have a thousand excuses for why it was okay what you did. Someone tries to lovingly encourage you to forgive that person who wronged you, and you rebut, no, not them. Someone tries to address a poor habit ingrained in your life, and you just cut them off. Say they're difficult or draining or don't want what's best for you. What happened to the king the preacher mentions, right? He was powerful, but no one cared. Those who come after him, the preacher says, will not rejoice in him. What happens is if we refuse to put to death our pride, that the same will happen to us, because eventually people will just stop trying. I don't want to tell that person that hard thing because they just always get upset. I don't want to confront that person about their sin because it just always turns into a fight or an excuse pity party or something else. I don't want to help them see this area of their life that might be off because they just always take everything so darn personally. That's pride. It kills community. All right. Let's head towards home. Two are better than one. That's his argument. Two are better than one. Community, a people to belong with, essential, necessary to the good life under the sun, and yet you can get, you can get killed by objectification, jealousy, laziness, busyness, and pride. So what do we do with all that? Right? Like, What do we do with those five community killers? Well, the issue for us, at least on the surface, is the preacher does nothing with it. Like chapter four has no turn like the other chapters did. Chapters two and three, he's like, so here's the deal. Be joyful in God, right? Like he like always turns it. There's no turn in chapter four. But this chapter isn't separated from the rest of the book or the rest of scripture. And so what I want to do as we close is just take a look one more time at those same three invitations. The same invitations we've been looking at throughout Ecclesiastes. And I want to see how the gospel of Jesus applies to these community killers. Here we go. Same three invitations. Number one, sacred honesty. Sacred honesty. What's going on underneath the surface of all of these community killers is that we can be and have the tendency to be, myself included, extremely self-obsessed. 
Like underlying all of these, jealousy, pride, busyness, laziness, objectification, it's all me-centric living. And part of the problem of being in the midst of me-centric living is that we have no ability to see that we are in fact living a me-centric life. And so it's going to take some Holy Spirit-empowered conviction to help us be sacredly honest about the ways, not that others kill community with us, but that we kill community with others. To be able to say, no, it's my jealousy. It's my laziness. It's my business. It's my pride. It's my objectification. That when it comes to the issues and problems we have in community, the first step is to agree with the wonderful prophetess Taylor Swift. It's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. Right? Just say, okay, there's a million. Yeah, but but Tim, yeah, I know. Probably. Like, they're probably too busy, too. They're probably too lazy to show up for you, too. They're probably mean. That, totally. What does the Bible say, right? Plank first. Deal with your own sin first. Acknowledge your own faults first. Address your own sin tendencies first. So what do we do? We show up in two specific ways. One, we show up in prayer. God, show me the ways I kill community in my life. Like, show me the ways that I am too busy for others, too lazy for others, too jealous of what others have that I don't have. Just show me my own sin, Lord. Like, shape me, mold me, forgive me, rebuke me, help me repent. And then we also show up in community. One of the hardest questions that, I, that I've learned to ask over the past few years is just sit down with someone who's trusted, who you love, who cares about you, you care about them, and ask this very simple question. How do you experience me? That's a hard question to ask, right? How do you experience me? Hey, when you give me hard feedback, when you point me towards Jesus, when you call me out on my sin, when you help push me towards the gospel, how do I respond? Like, what do you see well up within me? How do you experience living in community with me? Hey, do I never, ever call you back? Do you feel like you're always the one trying to initiate with me? Do you feel like you're always, like, do do I come off as too busy for you? too important for you? Like, just how do you experience me in our relationship? Show me these things. Part of the difficulty is I think pride kind of hovers over all of them. And part of the difficulty about being prideful and narcissistically inflexible is that you can't decide whether or not you're narcissistically inflexible or not. It's hard to see. We learn to be honest in community and in prayer with the Lord. Second, sacred mundanity. Sacred mundanity Stop rebelling against the life that you have, right? That's the continual callback in Ecclesiastes. Stop striving for something different. That's like this overarching theme of the book is God is kind to you. Be present where he has put you. And so when it comes to this, what that means is that the people God has put around you are the people God has put around you. And they're most likely pretty weird and a bit socially awkward and a touch forgetful and a bit overbearing. And their best attempts at trying to help you with your sin are probably way less gracious than you need them to be. And it probably takes way more energy to be around them than you have to give. And they're probably still struggling with that pesky little thing called sin. And here's the good news. So are you. And so am I. That's why we need each other, right? So yeah, they're messed up and broken, but the Bible would say, so are you. That's the good news of the gospel. That we're all messed up and broken. And we need the Lord and his spirit to move and shape our hearts. But we also need the gift of one another. And so we stop rebelling. I wish I had that community. You know what happens when you get that community? That community ends up being just as messed up, broken, and socially awkward as the last community you left. That's how life works. The grass is always greener. I love Dietrich Bonhoeffer for this. German theologian in the early 1900s, he says it this way. The person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. 
this is the community I want. Okay, if you just love that, what you're going to miss is the real, tangible, broken people around you. But if you learn to turn your gaze, okay, these are the people God has put in my life. I'm going to give of myself to love them. That's where community flourishes. And that leads to number three, sacred joy. Life in deep relationship with others is the way and was the way of Jesus, right? Jesus lived the good life. He was the walking, talking, living, breathing epitome of the good life with God. And his entire life was one of giving himself away for those around him. Jesus lived the good life, the life of self-sacrifice, not self-preservation. And that was the way to joy. I mean, even the cross, right? Even the greatest act of sacrifice in human history, even that, Hebrews 12 tells us, was a deep act of joy. So Jesus shows us this is the path of joy, not by project me, like preserving me, not by being all about me, but actually giving my life away in service to others. That's the way of Jesus. But not only does he show us that, he actually enables us to live into it. See, Jesus came and lived the perfect life we could not live, died the death we deserve, and rose again to kill our community killers. I mean, just think about how the gospel speaks directly to what within us wants to kill community. So think about objectification, right? Jesus lays down his life, sacrifices for the very people who are killing him, sees them as humans to be loved with souls. Think about jealousy. Jesus in the gospel gives us more than we ever deserve, and so we're freed up to be content in him and love others, despite if he gives them different gifts than us. Or laziness, right? Jesus' sacrifice compels us and moves us to love with energy and zeal or busyness. Jesus gave of himself, entered into humanity at great cost and inconvenience to himself. And then pride, right? The gospel levels the playing field. There's no room for narcissistic inflexibility at the foot of the cross. There's no room to say, I'm awesome and you can't tell me otherwise because the whole message of the gospel is that you're not awesome. And Jesus tells you that. That's the good news of grace. In the midst of saying, no, you are in fact a sinner. He also says, and I am in fact a great savior. One who has come to wash away your sins, to make you right with God, to clean you, give you a new heart, a heart ready to love God and then love others. So that is the path to the good life under the sun. We learn to receive God's gift of people to belong with. We pray for us. Lord, thank you for your word. God, thank you for Ecclesiastes chapter four. God, thank you that it hits so many parts of life under the sun, including our relationships with others. Lord, thank you for your kindness to give us your word, to preserve your word, to teach us through your word. God, thank you as you tell us, Lord, that your word is sharper than a double-edged sword, and so sometimes it needs to bring conviction. Sometimes it's hard to hear, it's hard to wrestle with, it's hard to embrace, Lord. And so I pray that right now, that you would push against the pride that wants to well up in our hearts and think about all of the different ways everybody in our community struggles with these five. Lord, you would bring deep conviction about our own hearts, our own brokenness, our own sin, the ways that our objectification, our jealousy, our laziness, our busyness, our pride get in the way of us living into flourishing relationships as you've called and designed us to live. God, I pray this week even would be a week of repentance, and a week of honesty, and a week of confession. Lord, would you give us the courage to step out in faith to someone who loves us and loves you and say, how do you experience me? Would you help me see my blind spots? Help me see the ways that I'm, I'm crushing flourishing relationships in my life. Lord, would you help this be a week of honesty, vulnerability, confession, and repentance. Lord, we love you. We need you. Let's not move quickly out of this. 
and sit with the conviction we need to hear. So I want to take a minute before we keep going. You can stay in prayer, in a posture of prayer, eyes closed, hands open, whatever's helpful. And I just want to give you a minute before we rush into singing, just pause with the Lord and ask, all right, Lord, here's, here's the five. If it's helpful, Abby, you can even put it on the screen. Here's, here's the five killers, Lord. Just before we rush out of this moment, would you show me, show me where I'm off? Let me just give you a minute to sit with the Lord, sit with the Holy Spirit, ask that question. But where do I need to be convicted? faithful to show you, ask the next question, Lord, will you help me this week? Help me fight against this. Help me confess this. Help me to take a tangible step of action. Help me in the words of James, not just be a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word. to our time of response, and we respond three ways here at Citizens Church. The first is through prayer. Our prayer team's around the room. They've got blue little lanyards on. If you need prayer, if the Holy Spirit's moving, convicting about this or anything else going on in your life, go get prayer. Let them pray for you. They're, they're here for that. That's why they want to do that. They want to pray for you. Second way we respond is through communion. We take bread and juice to remember the sacrifice of Jesus, the bread, which represents his body, the juice, represents his blood. For all of us who are Christians, all of us who are followers of Jesus, you're invited during the worship time to come and to take and to eat to remember the good news of the gospel. And the third way is we respond in worship. In just a minute, we're going to sing a new song together. This is a song that's uh, been on the hearts of a lot of us in leadership that we've been wanting to, to bring before you. It's a very simple song. It's a song called Be Like Him. And I would encourage you, I think there's a few postures in which you can sing a song like this. The first posture is you're singing this desire Lord, I just want to be like you. The first posture is one of repentance. Acknowledging, okay, there's a ton of ways I, I actually don't right now want to be like Jesus. And so this is a, an opportunity to have the posture of repentance. Lord, shape my heart back into a desire to be like you. I think the second way is out of a frustration. What I mean by that is there might be tangible ways you want to be like Jesus and that you're well away, lived well aware that the lived reality of your life is not like Jesus. And so it's a chance for you to pray in frustration. Lord, help me. Holy Spirit, mend me, shape me. I need your help. So if you would, you can stand, you can take communion when you're ready, get some prayer and let's sing to Jesus. Lord, I want to be like you. So let's stand and respond to God's word together.